Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Micah. It's me, Micah. Hello. It's me. <laughs> okay. Oh, shoot. Those are your initials. And that's going to make sense later when we talk about a cool article that's coming up. Yeah. What the heck are we talking about today? Well, we have a great slew of links to discuss on type and design news. And then we're going to talk about the bigger question around distributing fonts. And do you really need a foundry to be a type designer? And all the unconventional ways we're seeing fonts being distributed by different platforms. It's going to be kind of a continuation of the conversation we had with Joshua and Kyle from the Intero Gang that was released a few weeks ago. But we'll talk a little bit about Adobe fonts as a medium for distributing fonts and then also how some type designers just, you know, use their own personal website to distribute fonts and how licenses get involved and all that good stuff. Which per Steph's excellent verbiage and guidance in the content department, it's kind of around the theme of do I need to start a foundry if I want to be a type designer? That was kind of where she started us with, and we've gone in a couple different ways. So I think it's going to be an interesting chat. And you have some fun insight to add that I didn't know before we started talking. So that's going to be cool. I do. I have one other thing I just want to make public on this podcast. I haven't talked to you about this. Oh, no. I'm scared. I went to Austin. It's okay. Oh, no, oh, it's okay, just about okay. a vacation. Oh, phew. <laughs> I went to Austin for a week, and I've been meaning to go there for years. I was so happy. I'd enjoy the city, but there is an aesthetic there that I just haven't seen like a totally different visual landscape based purely off of a city. All the packaging of the beverages in a case in a grocery store were Austin beverages designed by Austin Design Studios. Every piece of hospitality and restaurant design was all locally designed. The whole idea that Austin is a city of makers is like seen in everything you touch and see in that city. And I was just so impressed. It has its own like funk and edge to it. I learned about a few Austin Design Studios that I'm admiring now these days. But yeah, that's my news from my travels. That's an interesting takeaway. Lots of cities are proud of who they are and their own culture and whatnot. But the way you're describing it, it just sounds like more than just Austin pride, but like Austin creativity infused into normal, everyday stuff. Yeah, like the coffee shops I went to, everything was owned by Austin. There was such like a singular kind of visual look and feel, but then also tone of voice. The branding for Austin as an ecosystem is fucking cool. You know what it sounds like? It sounds like Texan Portland. Like there's going to be a comedy show called Austinia soon after Portlandia. That's a good one. This also makes me kind of want to go to Portland from everything I've heard. But yeah, yeah, I'm sure it's a welcome metaphor. All right. Let's dive the heck in. We've got a wild first one that I have opinions about. Ooh, curious about your opinions, because we are traveling to the wild, wild world of Rhode Island with the news that there's a new RISD rebrand. And this article from It's Nice That says, a new RISD rebrand places a family of custom typefaces and a redrawn seal at its center. So RISD, the 
very famous art institution, probably the most famous art school in the world, has a new typographic system and a new seal, which I was familiar with their seal previously. I've worked with a lot of RISD grads, have been friends with RISD grads, have seen the merchandise, very old school. They say it was actually designed by John Howard Benson, who's a very well-known stone carver and calligrapher. So start with a seal. I love the way the seal has been done. Also, the people behind this, Ryan Bugden worked on the type. He's an independent type designer and the design studio Gretel and the London-based research agency On Road all worked on this. But this is focusing specifically on the typographic look. There's a serif, there's a sans. Since you're so anxious to tell me your thoughts, I want to hear them. <laughs> I don't know what I'm anxious exactly, but at first you look at this article and there's the hovering seal in the middle just to show off all the typography with like four different variations of custom RISD typeface. And at first, when you first look at it, I, I don't think I realized that it was animated in the sense that they made a bunch of highly stylized kind of stenciled versions of all of these custom typefaces. And that seems to be what they're using everywhere, which is pretty cool. It's not bad, but fonts without those stencils are boring as heck. They're just like, what? Why do you need a custom font for this? This is every other font that I've ever seen. What the heck? And so I was very underwhelmed. And, you know, I'm fairly anti-art school, if you haven't mm -hmm. ever picked up on that from previous conversations. But I feel like it seemed so full of itself at first for something that was just really basic. Even the redrawing of the seal. Mm -hmm. I love that it's very similar to the old seal, but I don't really know what was wrong with the old seal. Keep the old seal. Merge mm -hmm. that into something, you know? I think it's interesting talking about a big reasoning behind Big reasoning as to what RISD is putting out in their press behind the rebrand is to rebrand themselves after apparently there was a lot of significant criticism in 2020. There was protests from students, alumni, faculty, and staff, outrage at how deeply embedded racist practices and structures were in the institution. Um, and since then, RISD is trying to, quote unquote, implement a series of measures to tackle such issues. And that this rebrand is hoping to, like, bring them into the new world. Yeah. Yeah. I think any brand that has to deal with bad press is like, okay, well, we'll we're just going to take a look at everything. So I understand them taking a look at the logo. We're finding it. Do I think this system is solving embedded institutionalized racism in art schools? I don't think so, but I also don't think it really <laughs> needs to be. Like, I also think it's like weird yeah. that one of the first paragraphs is we need a rebrand because we need our visual language to showcase, like, bring your words into actions. There's other yeah. campaigns you can run to, like, actually prove that you're solving this. So I think it's always interesting that these big, heady concepts get brought in with, and it's because our visual brand can now reflect that we care more. I'm very glad that you worded that so well, because I think that was part of what is making me so like, oh, come on. You know, you can't just rebrand and everybody's going to forget the problems that have happened. You got to do something yeah. differently. And like the idea that, oh, let's just rebrand. It's such like a freaking oil corporation perspective of yeah, right. let's just rebrand and change the conversation. Which may be a little harsh. I don't know all of the details behind this. So it was just a matter of like, oh, well, all right. yeah, but I will say. Just looking at it typographically, obviously 
if you look at it, some of these are like very standard workhorse kind of fonts, which I'm sure that they need. I don't know why they need to be custom other than maybe licensing, which is fair. We've talked about that in the past. One of the only things that kind of changed my mind, the usage examples are good design. There's a lot of good usage of the new typography at the bottom of the article. And I was like, okay, okay. And then I clicked through to Ryan Bugden's portfolio where it's like showing a lot more of the detail behind it. And there's one animation in the middle where it's showing typing out a sentence. It's an animated graphic and it's typing out a sentence Mm -hmm. and it's starting stenciled and each character as it animates on becomes like it starts with stenciled and then kind of fills in to the unstenciled Mm -hmm. version. And suddenly seeing that I'm like, okay, I see how that could be an interesting pitch. If that was the thesis of this idea is like, that is art school is like, progress and like filling it in and there is some creativity behind that idea if that was the idea which who knows but I'll take it so yeah you definitely caught on to that I was curious if you were going to pick it up because I read it and it has been like really taking me absorbing this kind of portfolio of work to get to it but the type system was designed in a way that ranges from complete to incomplete and then back to complete again. It was informed by the principle that an education itself is never complete and I also see what you're saying about art school is like you know, iterating, reiterating, learning, unlearning. And I agree that's one of the most successful, interesting parts of this system. Which is tough because that's like all of the other things are print materials where you don't get that at all. Yeah. So it's a little bit of a shame to have like such a clever idea that can only be used in digital context. Yeah. I'll say one last thing. We've talked about Ryan's work before. I absolutely adored his project, Strawberry Western. Um, It was just like a really unusual approach to letter forms for a fashion identity. And I think he just got some other big rebrand I saw on his Instagram um, in addition to this RISD. So I do love seeing like, um, I think he was relatively an emerging type designer in the past couple of years, hit at home with some interesting projects and like taking his Pretty unique perspective, especially when you start looking at the interesting ways the stencils are formed and getting to see from like a new emerging type designer how type is getting made. I think that's an exciting win out of this. That is pretty cool. It does seem like somebody to follow. Yeah. Uh, a lot of interesting work. So Agreed. I don't know. Keep it up. All right. Second. Oh my God. I'm so excited about this article. Because it has, I feel like we're just traveling. We went to Austin, then we went mm-hmm. up the East Coast to Rhode Island. And in our next link, we are going a little bit south to Micah's place of origin at this moment, Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> I guess not place of origin. Place of origin like, at this moment, where I happen to be. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's an article about the Philadelphia Inquirer's redesign and how it embraces a typographic overhaul. So I did not know about the Philadelphia Inquirer, but it is your local newspaper. (laughs) And Pentagram has been given the big ask to do a redesign of it with a strong focus on a more dynamic use of typography. So they do adjustments to the logo itself, which is just a beautiful black letter, classic header logo for a newspaper. And then they also obviously do adjustments to how things look like on the newspaper itself and in the digital sphere. And it's interesting even seeing articles about a print newspaper getting new design, considering how little I see print newspapers in 
general. But what is your experience with the Philadelphia Inquirer? I did not know that it existed. So that's... (laughs) (laughs) I mean, obviously, like, every city has some big black letter font newspaper that's been around for 200 years or whatever. So I'm not surprised that it exists, but I don't get the newspaper, so I don't really pay attention. I mean, it's a fairly straightforward tweaking, which there's a video of, like, you can see all the different versions over the years. And it's interesting because the first couple versions back in the 1800s were pretty rough. They were not great. But it's been, like, a pretty consistent evolution, refinement, I suppose. And Mm -hmm. it's good. (laughs) Like, (laughs) It's interesting. I wouldn't say I am inspired completely by newspaper design. But I think there were actually some interesting adjustments. Well, they also talk about what it is to design for like a newspaper. And a lot of it is about streamlined production because people are making content every day that has to get printed. So Pentagram, the team at Pentagram kind of tried to think of a way to avoid over-designing and making a system rather than trying to get every single tiny detail right. When you look at the images of the actual print magazine from the front page, the business page, to life and culture, I do think it's really interesting. Their headings for those different categories are differentiated by color. So business and money is like blue, life and culture is purple, like the words themselves. And I guess Mm. I haven't really seen... like. I open up the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune every once in a while if I'm like at my parents or at my aunt uncle's and to see type headings being used as color and to see like type and color in general in a newspaper is possible, but it hasn't really been done that much before. And I thought that was like an interesting ad that they brought in this system. That's a fair point. I have to admit, I'm like underwhelmed by all of this, though. (laughs) It's like classic newspaper, black letter, refined. Sure, but looks like every other newspaper, black letter. Their website looks like every other newspaper website. I mean, yeah, I guess they're using color in this instance. And that's cool. If that's novel, I don't know. That's not, that's like, maybe I'm being a jerk here. I don't know. The article could definitely benefit from like a before and after situation. I guess that's fair. I don't really know if it looked especially awful before or... If it looked a lot like this, I don't know. (laughs) You got to pick up a paper next time you see it and tell us what you're feeling. I'd have to go see if there's some old paper stuffed in the walls or something so I can compare before and after. Yeah. Good idea. (laughs) All right. Hey, moving on. Still good newspapery stuff. Yeah. This next one's great. This next one's really fun. Talk about the most inspiring thing I've seen in the last few days. Don't want to make anything too bold of a statement here, but it is because it's a it's an article about the word okay. Like you're like this is the most inspiring thing. This is epic about the word okay. Okay. Which, to be fair, that's the references. Those are that's your initials too. So I get it. Every day in my full time job, I have to name a file with. The letter's okay at the oh, end of it. That's so funny. I never thought of that. I am the queen of this letter combination. I've been told since I was literally in kindergarten how lucky I am to have them as my <laughs> initials. So to actually find out the history was really fun. Of course, letter aficionado Trey Seals sent this to me. The only other person that immediately was like, I know someone that would find this fascinating. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. I feel like I also saw it on Twitter 
this week. Somebody was talking Did about you? it on Twitter. I thought I found okay. it. I guess you found it. We both found it. That's funny. Oh, nice. No, I love that. This is a very digitally interactive article. So how would you describe it in your digital lens? Yeah, I guess it's an interactive article. It is an article because you're reading and learning stuff and it's about a particular topic. It's a very guided experience where as you scroll, it's showing you certain things at certain times so that you're kind of always looking at what the designer here, Ben Schwartz, wants you to be looking at. You know, I was looking at some of the other articles that are on this site of a brief history of there's like three or four other things. And it's like art directed. It's like it's like the good old fashioned art directed articles where like this article Mm. was designed to be an interactive page with its own branding and design and all that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's cool. I've never seen any reporting on the history of the word okay. I was surprised to learn that the most verified version of how it originated was that it was used to stand for all correct, but all correct spelled incorrectly. So O-L-L-K-O-R-R-E-C-T. And that was ages ago. Like, I'm pretty sure the 1800s. Middle school Micah, who used to live on AOL Instant Messenger and would spell everything incorrectly to be defiant, would love that. That's... Oh my God. Of course you did. And that also is funny because like built into the meaning of okay was that this wasn't even like a hundred percent a correct thing. It was okay enough, like all correct spelled incorrectly. You would get it. Like you understand what it means, but it's not great. So (laughs) the whole idea that that is how it originates a while. There's a bunch of myths that they go over. They talk about it in culture. Apparently, Coca-Cola decided to do this Coke that was called OK because researchers found that Coke was the second most recognized word in the world, bested only by the word OK. And so they made this like neo-noir Coca-Cola design called OK. They talk about how OK is used as a CTA in a lot of interface design. It's usually OK or cancel. And for a while, Mac tried to use do it instead of OK for the CTA and then found that people found that really annoying that the computer used to tell you to do it whenever you want to like <laughs> do an action. And then also how we continue to abbreviate it to like one of the most controversial text you can send of all time, which is just K. So... Definitely read more if you want more of a overall history of this word. I have to say I was really reminded of like Apple's interactive website. I was going through this article, the way that certain things mm. like guide you to read certain things at certain times. You've sent me a TikTok recently about that being one of like Apple's signature things of their web design right now. So definitely thought of that while reading like this article could have came from Apple. I wouldn't have been that surprised. There's also just a lot of humor built into this, which is hilarious. Like it ends on Lil John, who I'm not going to do the impression right now, but look him up. He's always saying, okay, he's okay with everything. Amazing. And there was uh, like the little accept cookies thing is like Microsoft Clippy, that dumb little floating mm-hmm. paper clip. And I appreciate too that there's like a colophon at the end. They're like, is credit for, you know, who did the research, who did the writing. Presumably that's a font. I didn't actually click on it, but is it describing what fonts it's set in or no? Uh, it's usually what the color font is for, right? Now, now that I'm clicking I'm on it, I'm like, oh, sure. shoot, I don't think they did that, but okay. 
Okay. It's all good. That's okay. <laughs> huh. Still okay in okay's eyes. We're going to have to leave this puniverse soon. <laughs> oh, my God. We can't leave it's, it. It's all right. impossible now. Next up. Type to Nord. Our lovely friend Libby Bischoff is continuing with her newsletter that she started with her 52 fonts project. She created a font every day for a year, which is insane. But now Libby is going back and working on fonts that she previously started and continuing to refine them, which is really interesting as we talk about unconventional ways to release typefaces, um, not necessarily releasing typefaces when they're final, 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 but instead along the way. Um, it's great to see like her transparency as to why she's correcting some of these letter forms and her process along the way with spacing strings and all that good nerdy type design stuff. Lovely seeing her adjustments, like she does animated GIFs of it before and after, just like really small things that always great to have like a window into the type designer's world. And then sends us a newsletter. She just Writes like a few fun things that she did that week, which I just find really endearing and sweet. Indeed. Like a sweater that she knitted. But which yeah, I think excellent. in like. Excellent sweater. Superb sweater. I know. Libby, multi talented. And I just like think in the world of us trying to talk about different ways people are releasing things, it's great to just see from the source how people are sharing behind the scenes of some of the small, tiny little details. Yeah. And uh, those details in the animated gifts that you see i feel like themselves are really educational just to see how someone who you look up to and is great at what they do is making these tiny adjustments like i feel like i've mm -hmm. I've been watching these gifts on loop for like 10 minutes straight and noticing a slight difference in a different spot every time and i'm like oh yeah i guess the space between the q and the r is a little bit tighter i didn't notice that the first time i watched or mm -hmm. the x is just like a hair wider that kind of makes sense because now it, it kind of fits in better with the w and the y you know and like those tiny yeah. details that you get that aren't specifically called out you can kind of just notice and then you kind of get this like delight of finding it yourself yeah oh, i love that you mentioned that's educational i feel like exactly perfect description because you would look at a font like this and maybe not necessarily be like, here's every little thing that needs to be corrected, but it is satisfying to see through the designer's eyes, like what things were necessary without seeing pages and pages of spacing strings, which is obviously what Libby probably had to do to like get to these conclusions. And on top of that, there's an excellent spooky eighties Halloween playlist. That's, I highly encourage you to look at number 13 because that's the best. Um, okay. The song is named Chunk. Oh, get it. We know why get I it. like it. Because <laughs> Passive Chunk. No, it's actually a really fun playlist, and there's like way too many songs on here, which is great. Yeah. Incredible. All right. Our last article is relating to our Nerd Alert. So I'm just going to do like a quick overview of what it is, and then we'll just seamlessly move into Nerd Alert time. Um, it was published a few years ago from Ulrich Hogrib. He was at that point, I think, affiliated with Type Thursday, and they interviewed Jesse Reagan and Ben Keel about XYZ type um, right when XYZ was started. Um, and they talk a little bit about how the two of them are creating this boundary together and how they specialize in different things, which allows them to bring their skill sets to this one company and what that was like kind of creating a foundry. So definitely check that out. But 
Micah, let's dive into it. Does a type designer need to start a foundry if they want to sell type? I mean, heck no. Definitely not. There's there's mm-hmm. lots of independent type designers. We've already talked about a bunch today where they're just publishing under their own name. And mm-hmm. um, at least, <laughs> I mean, to throw a little bit of business knowledge in, at least in America, uh, mm-hmm. you can operate a business just under your name as you, and you are considered a sole proprietor, and you can sell stuff, including fonts or services of making fonts. Honestly, basically, I'm not sure where we want to go with this discussion, but I want to point out that basically I think neither direction of either like publishing independently as yourself or publishing under a name have to be complicated. You can just come up with a name for a foundry. Legally, there's one or two small hoops that you have to jump through, which like the internet makes easy of like, maybe you want to register an LLC for extra protection, or there's a thing called a DBA, which is doing business as. So any type of business, even a sole proprietor, can file in their county or whatever, look up how to do it in your county to say, I'm going to start doing business as Houston type, even though Mm -hmm. I'm just a sole proprietor of Micah Rich. I just want to sell it under that name. And so you could sell type just as yourself or as a business, and neither one of them has to be that crazy. What do you say are the pros of starting a foundry? Ooh, good question. I think... This has like been the answer as long as I've been alive of why form an LLC or why have a company instead of just yourself. And legally, if you do everything right of banking separately and following the rules and whatnot, you are protected if you form certain type of legal business type things like an LLC. But I think everybody, for the most part, still believes that a company deserves more money than an individual. Mm. So it's so much easier to quote some astronomical price if you look like a company than if you look like one person. Yeah. And in some instances, a foundry will allow you to like have a team, right? You know, if you want to continuously collaborate with other people, you can't just be like, yeah, it's Olivia Kane. Like, yeah, you can subcontract out, obviously. But I'm assuming the reason why you started a foundry and not just start giving out open source typefaces under your name is because you wanted a like collective that had was a little bit bigger than yourself. Yeah. Don't want to put words in your mouth. But yeah, no, that's true. I was going to say it's because I wanted a secret society. But that too. The other part (laughs) is, yeah, like I want a shared mission that wasn't me, despite me being on the podcast and like doing a bunch of stuff in front of the league. I've never wanted to like have my face in front of things. So it's beneficial to have an entity to it, you know? Yeah. So like everybody can get behind that that idea. You know, it's like Batman, yeah. right? Yeah. Get behind the idea yeah. of Batman instead of Bruce Wayne punching people. Yeah. That's hilarious. <laughs> Bruce Wayne punching people. What a good <laughs> podcast name to talk about, like the history of comics. <laughs> Okay, I like where this is heading. I kind of want to talk about if you're a type designer, maybe you've decided I'm not going to start a foundry. I'm still going to distribute type under my own website, maybe. But then maybe you also want to be on other platforms. You know, we had Nadine Shaheen on the podcast a little bit ago talking about her outreach for I Love Typography and getting type designers to distribute their fonts through her website. There's also my fonts that distributes it. There's also Adobe fonts that can distribute your font. 
and the licensing terms on all of those could be quite different. Quick anecdote, this week we were going through a tough licensing choice where I wanted to license this one font. It was available on this Foundry's website. It was available on the Type Designer's website. It was available on I Love Typography. This Foundry was a Foundry that aggregated a few other, few just type designers work on their Foundry. And the licensing to use that Foundry was going to be $300 for this one single weight font that was going to be used in some print material for a seasonal campaign. Then we looked at I Love Typography and the actual type designer site, and it was less than $100. And that's like a significant budgeting concern. And then imagine if that font was also on Adobe font, that would be $0 for us to use that in campaign, assuming everyone has access to Creative Cloud. So I think there's a lot of interesting ways like we can talk about how that all varies. Foundries and distributors, I'm assuming, are taking a little bit more of a cut than if you're just having it served on your website directly. And then Adobe fonts is a totally different model as well. Yeah, I feel like the justification for something like a foundry is the audience. Mm, interesting. Well, one thing that we didn't really touch on is like, that I think plays into this is there is also value in you going solo under your own name and like building a brand for yourself. Like I'm saying previously, here's why I wanted to make it a foundry and why foundries could be good. But also, if you are the brand and you do good work and people start to like you, you gain a following basically anything you put out then has an audience. And that's beneficial. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, I feel like Trey Seals that you mentioned is, mm -hmm. is a good example of that. Of He started a foundry under a different name, but he also did work solo as himself. And people really started paying attention to his name. And now a lot of people, like you say his name, and people know who he is. And that's beneficial, mm -hmm. right? And so mm -hmm. that plays into what you're just asking is because if you are solo and you don't have a lot of people knowing your name, putting your fonts in a collective foundry, they might already have an audience where you're going to sell yes. more because people know that yes. foundry, like that brand, where they might not yeah. know you yet. That's such a good point. I even think Ono Typeco has a couple typefaces, maybe one or two that are not designed solely by James. And, mm. and I think Jeremy Landis might be one of the designers on one of the typefaces. And I remember being shocked because I was like, oh, I just assumed everything at Oh No was done by James. But then it's always interesting to see, like, it's still in the same spirit of Ono Typeco, but this other designer is probably getting a lot more exposure because Ono Typeco has, like, a huge audience. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, I don't really know what, in your example, if that foundry that you were looking at that cost more if they took a giant cut so they just raised the price i'm not sure maybe it's possible i'm not seeing the foundry's name so like i don't want this to be like a name yeah. blame obviously right. but they the might be totally so justified there might be a good reason we don't know so the reason it got really expensive is because if you had over a certain amount of followers on instagram the license got more expensive Oh, what the heck? That's interesting. Our client had a lot of Instagram followers, but realistically, the actual press around how this type was going to get used was going to be very minimal. And I'm not going to say it was like design that is going to like wallpaper into the backdrop of New York, but it was signage. It was not something that is like a Nike campaign. 
Yeah. So it was interesting that certain metrics of perceived popularity was what got that license to be out of a budget completely for the client. It was only after we did further investigation that we, I was going to have to find a totally different font because they were like, we're not paying $300 for this font for this small Mm. campaign. In the context, it was not important enough. Exactly. So that's interesting too, that like when you have your foundry, licenses are on your terms. Like if you want to be more value-based, like, oh, you have a huge ass client. We're going to make sure that this is charged up to you. That's on the foundry's terms. And we've talked about in a few episodes in the last couple months, different foundries that have tried kind of new experiments in that realm. That honestly sounds like one of the examples of that breaking down. Like it doesn't work in every edge case, which is interesting. Yeah, because at that point, we didn't even use that foundry to license the font. We found a totally different foundry because we're like, this is not viable. Right. But you're right. I mean, well, that's kind of true no matter whether you're making a foundry for yourself and your friends or whether you're going under your own name as a solo person. You get to dictate the terms of whatever you're selling. So that's true in any version of you starting to sell your fonts. But it is interesting because... If you are starting a foundry and you make that decision that that's how the foundry works, and then you start, like you're saying, getting other people on board, then they are affected by that too. Yeah. Which is fascinating. So I also wanted to do like a quick touch on this quick point because Micah, I know me, you and Steph have been very curious about the Adobe fonts model as we continue to talk about different ways people can distribute typefaces. And the Adobe Fonts model allows any font in their catalog to be free for personal commercial use as long as you have access to the catalog through a Creative Cloud subscription. So I was with some very friendly type folks a few weeks ago, and apparently there's a lot of opaqueness around how this model actually works. But what I was able to gather was that it's a similar model to, let's say, Spotify, where if you're familiar with how artists get payouts on Spotify, it depends on the amount of streams. So it's a little bit simpler in Spotify. You get 0.0005 cents for every stream you have. Obviously, the more streams, the more money. If you really want to support an artist on Spotify, you just play their music nonstop morning to night hours and hours on end, the streams should eventually add up into tiny, tiny amounts of money. So in Adobe fonts, it's a similar thing where there is like a certain amount of money that is determined by two things, by how many people have synced to your font. So when you go on Adobe Creative Cloud, you can sync a font and unsync it for when it's in use. And then it also depends for how long that font is synced. So if you want to support your type designer friends, you go ahead, sync all the weights of all their fonts they have on Adobe fonts and never (laughs) unsync them. It's basically the same thing as like listening to an artist on Spotify throughout the night on a very low volume, which I know people do. Justin Bieber (laughs) asked his fans once to play his fucking album overnight at a low volume so he could gain streamings numbers. That's hilarious. Which is also interesting. I It's an interesting way to quantify it. Again, a lot of opaqueness because, you know, how much money is everyone getting a percentage of a bucket of money? Is there a set dollar amount for the amount of sinks? At what increments of time do you get more money for how long your your font is synced? All of that. But obviously, just like being part of a foundry to use a foundry's audience, the Adobe audience is 
fucking huge. Like a lot of people <laughs> have access to Adobe fonts yeah, and can discover, you know, new designers on that as well. So I just also want any piece of industry I could share what I just want to. And I think there's some people that have some of their fonts on Adobe fonts, but not all of them. I so want to talk to other type designers about what conversations they have with themselves on whether or not they put something out on there and why they would and why they wouldn't and that reasoning. So definitely hope to continue like those conversations as we get more type designers on the pod. Yeah. I'm, you talking about this is interesting because I've only ever really like Adobe fonts started as Typekit back in the day. Mm-hmm. So we had a partnership with Typekit that kind of transferred into Adobe fonts and it was only ever online until whatever, a couple of years ago, probably more than a couple at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Where they started letting you sync in Photoshop and the syncing that you're talking about. So I only ever really thought of it in terms of website usage. Mm-hmm. And I mean, some of our fonts are on there. Yeah. And I'm now realizing like I forgot the login. I don't remember, I don't remember <laughs> how to look at the usage of our fonts. But I know it would at least tell you, like, in any given time period, how how many fonts were, like, viewed on web pages. And so Mm. it must do a similar thing as a foundry on Adobe Fonts to show you syncs, like, if they're paying out based on that. Yeah. So now I'm I'm on a mission to try to find that login. Yeah, we'll have to do it. We'll keep you updated. I use Adobe Fonts, like, almost every day when I'm working. And I know a lot of people do, and I think that's important. I would love to have a little bit more transparency as to how money and funds get distributed from this massive, massive, massive platform Yeah, and like the pros and cons of distributing your font on that. There are certainly big considerations. Even though this ties into the theme that we're talking about, it might be interesting to like do a deep dive on that at some point. Yeah, I think we should get our trench coats and uh, fedoras on and some investigative work. I'll bring the magnifying glass. Oh my gosh, you would. I bet you have one too. <laughs> I might somewhere. I don't know. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> Micah, what a conversation. What a fun day. What a fun time. We know how to have fun on this nerdy type podcast. Heck yeah. So uh, I don't know why I'm so caught with words. I don't know how to wrap this up. Do you want to bring us home? Well, Olivia, I think you did a great job as usual. And I love doing this podcast with you. I always <laughs> have too. fun chatting with you. So uh, thanks to everybody for tuning in. And uh, we'll catch you next week. Do-do-do. 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 Do